How is everybody? Good, good. It's graduation week this week. Was there, is there any graduates? Anyone in here? Yeah, a couple over there. Awesome. Yeah, congratulations. I was an August graduate, which was really nice. Was I an August graduate? Yeah, I was. If you're like a, is it May? If you're a May graduate, that's like hell on earth. There's like 9 million people in Murphy Center and it's terrible. So uh, I remember, um, I'm going to lie and say that I strategically graduated in August. I didn't. I was on like the six-year track for a bachelor's. So uh, um, there wasn't much strategy in that at all. So uh, glad you guys are here. I'm not an idiot, I swear. I did get my degree eventually. Um, but uh, glad you guys are here. We've been working through the book of Daniel. If you haven't been here, especially if you weren't here last week, we're in chapter 7 this week, and, and we're getting into some pretty, some pretty deep waters. If you weren't here last week, we talked about this guy, Daniel, who is, is probably in his 80s at this time, his mid to late 80s. Is, he's received visions and he's received uh, uh, dreams before in the past. He's been an interpreter of dreams and visions. And in chapter 7, we covered the first half where Daniel received an extremely important vision. Chapter 7 of the book of Daniel has been said by many theologians to be not only one of the most important chapters of the Old Testament, but one of the most important chapters of the entire Bible. And the reason why is it's the first real glimpse of the end times specifically of an individual that we know of now as the Antichrist, comes up in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. So we get into some really interesting stuff. And so Daniel had this vision. It wasn't a dream. A dreams and a vision are different, and I'll get into that here in a second. He had a vision, and in this vision, four beasts came up out of the sea, and we know that it's a metaphorical beast and metaphorical sea. It's a sea of people, and these leaders and these empires rise up from humanity. And so what he sees in the first half of chapter 7 is Daniel sees a glimpse of all human history as pertaining to empires, governments, okay? Big empires. And he sees the rise and fall of all these empires. And so in the second half of chapter 7, we get the interpretation. We got a little bit of that last week from Daniel, but we're going to get an interpretation. Daniel, Daniel in this vision talks to an angel and this angel gives him, fills in all the blanks about what this, this vision meant, okay? So last week we talked about this, and we're not gonna talk about the, the, the final kind of point I'm gonna make today, just like last week. Isn't a groundbreaking one? They're pretty simple. Last week we talked about this. This salvation comes not through our perfection, not through what we do, not through our, our abilities, but it is us, our willingness just to lean on Christ. It comes through his perfection, through his ability, through his grace, through his power, that that's how we are saved, okay? This week we're going to talk about this. The salvation exclusively comes through Christ. Jesus himself said so. It comes exclusively through him. No one sees heaven, no one sees the Father except through Jesus Christ. And you and I must have a sense of urgency about this. What that means is, even if this world lasts for another thousand years, there are people that will die tomorrow, there are people that will perish soon, and so we have to have a sense of urgency in us that we need to be right with the Father, and we need to have a sense, man, that wasp. Every week, right? The great wasp of the apocalypse. But, um, and then there needs to be this sense of urgency in us to tell others about Christ so their lives can be addressed now and their eternities can be secure. That's a big deal, okay? So we're going to get into that a little bit today. Deep stuff 
It's, it's interesting stuff. There's debatable stuff in this. I'll talk about all that. Um, but the message at the end is pretty, is pretty simple, okay? So let me pray. We'll dive into this. Uh, everyone doing okay? December's like a blur, isn't it? It just kind of like comes and then it vanishes. <laughs> and, uh, and you've spent all this money on your kids and you're like, oh, we're broke. So um, that's basically December, right? So uh, <laughs> anyways, glad you guys are here. So let's get into the word, okay? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you. <sighs> Lord, I just pray that you open up our ears and our eyes today, God. Open up our hearts, Lord. Let us be vulnerable, Lord. Let us be good recipients of your word this morning. Father, we want to pray for every church in our city, God. Uh, we want to pray for the churches that are bigger than us, the churches that are smaller than us, God. We want to pray for everyone, Lord, who proclaims uh, your name and follows your name, God. Advance your kingdom, Lord. Lord Jesus, God, um, we pray for this specific church, Lord. We pray for the members of 5,000 who are out feeding the homeless right now, God. We pray for Eon and Echo and Emerge and all the different groups that are going on right now, Lord. And, and we just pray, God, that you just bless us and, and, and just, Lord, keep your hand on us. We love you and we lift you up, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you should have received a notes handout when you walked in. It has pretty much everything I'm going to say on it. It's also on you version, and uh, you can click on the bottom right button, and uh, I think it's events or live or something, and our church pops up. It's fancy. Okay, book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament after the book of Ezekiel. We're in chapter 7, which is after chapter 6, and uh, we'll be starting on verse 15, okay? I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'll go back and break it down to the best of my abilities. Here we go. As for me... Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those standing by, and I asked him the true meaning of all of this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So after Daniel saw what he saw in verses 1 through 14, very, very disturbing stuff, it says that he became terrified. He was very, very scared because he saw this, basically this whole scope of human history as pertaining to empires rising and falling. It was metaphorically kind of played out, and he's very, very terrifying beasts. So he's scared. And so he is in this vision, and he's surrounded by a host of angels. There's one near him, more than likely, theologians believe this was Gabriel. Gabriel is used several times in the Bible to be a messenger. So he nudges this angel, and he says, can you tell me what's going on? Can you explain to me what's happening here? Now look, remember, this is a vision, not a dream. And the best way, because I'm a dork, the best way I can think of this in my own head, and for you fellow dorks in the room that watch Star Trek, you're welcome, think of the holodeck, right? If you don't know what a holodeck is, you're not very cultured, but the holodeck where there would be this room that they would walk into. And so they're, they're, they're coherent, they're awake. Daniel's not asleep during this, but imagine almost kind of like these holographic images that he can interact with and he can ask questions to, okay? And so that's essentially what's going on uh, with Daniel. And what he sees in this vision is kingdoms. He sees kingdoms that rise and fall. And the angel tells Daniel that these beasts are kings that will rise from the earth. And it's not just a king, an individual. It is, again, whole governments, okay? 
They're going to rise up and they're going to fall. And Daniel is also told that eventually all of the earthly governments and empires will fall and the holy ones of the Most High will receive a kingdom and they will possess it forever. Now, there's a contrast. We're going to see several of these that come up in this lesson. And the first contrast we see is that the kingdom of God is given to Christians. We do not take it by force like the kingdoms of the earth get their power. We do not gain, we do not go on conquest like the empires of the earth have always done. Our kingdom will be graciously given to us. And what we see here is there is a difference how our kingdom operates versus earthly kingdoms. In the kingdom of God, we do not take, we do not acquire by brute force or by power or by political tactics. The way we receive our kingdom and the way we receive all the gifts that God has given us, everything we achieve, everything we gain, every success, even if that's by our talents, our abilities, our money, our power, all of those things are gifts from God. So Christians need to step back and understand that whatever we have, whatever successes we've gained, that is all by the grace of God, not by our power, not by our tactics. And in these times, it's so interesting that we're going through the book of Daniel right now, a book written 2,600 years ago that is so relevant to the state of our world today. And right now, I try to separate politics and church, but we're going to really just together today. Um, but what we're doing right now is Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and all these people are loving, uh, they're loving what's going on right now because their ratings are shooting out of the roof because people are terrified of what's going on in the world right now. And we as believers in Jesus must remember that we do not fight with rhetoric we do not fight with slander. We do not fight with malice, which is anger with the intent to hurt. How we are called to fight, and people will disagree with me on this, but it's from Ephesians 6.12, we are to fight by praying and petitioning to God to have Him go out and deal with evil. It's not the movies where we have shotguns shaped like crosses, right? And we're blasting demons away with Keanu Reeves. That is not true spiritual warfare. It is done through prayer and church. If you're worried about politics and economics in the state of the world, the first response the church should have is just like what Daniel did. Pray. Pray. Our prayer room should be more full. We should be praying more at home. We should be praying more with our spouses and our children. We should be petitioning the Lord through prayer. That's how the believer fights. And so who are these holy ones, right? Who are the ones who are going to inherit this kingdom at the end of time? Now, there's a double interpretation to this, and there's some debate about this too, but I feel pretty strongly that there's a double interpretation on this. To Daniel, this would have been the Jews. He had no idea who the New Testament church was. He had no revelation of that. And so it alludes to the fact that there will be a literal reign on planet earth when Jesus comes back and that these believing Jews, this remnant of believing Jews, will have a hand in that. And for a thousand years, they will reign on earth with believing Christians. And so there's been a promise made to Abraham and a promise made to David in the Old Testament that the Jews would never be wiped off the face of the planet, that their people would always exist and we've seen through history, even in the 1930s and 1940s, when millions of Jews were slaughtered, 
that no matter how hard man tries, God's people will not be wiped off the face of the planet. And that's because he said it would not be so. And so not only will it be a remnant of Jews, there will be these New Testament believers that will also be a part of these holy ones. Now, what a lot of people in North America have done, and I'm not trying to just bash on North America today, but we've become very arrogant in thinking that we have replaced the Jewish people. That's called replacement theology, and quite frankly, it's bad theology. We have not replaced the Jews. What has happened is the Jewish people, Israel, are the tree, and we have been graciously grafted into that tree. So we receive the same promise we receive the same benefits that the people of God were given initially by Abraham. We are grafted into that family, but we have not replaced them. God is not done with the Jewish people. And whenever Christians say that he is, that is extremely bad and quite frankly, arrogant theology. Now, here's the thing about the book of Daniel. Not just the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation as well. When people dive into these, and when I taught Revelation a couple of years ago, I had to say it every single week. Don't get lost in things that are debatable. If you ever come to a next class, I say that we minor on minors and we major on majors. And that's true. We focus on the essentials and the minors we'll talk about, but we're not going to fight about. It's a waste of time. So I encourage you, do not get hung up on things that are not essential to the mission of Christ. We can disagree on the thousand-year reign. We can disagree about the rapture. We can disagree about stuff like that, and that's okay. There's actually an extremely intelligent man that comes to this church, and we disagree on a lot of stuff on Daniel, but he sent me an email the other day, and it was really encouraging. He goes, man, I disagree with a lot of the stuff you're saying, but there's no reason that you and I can't worship together and advance the kingdom of God. Now, that's the point. As we become mature as believers, we can disagree on predestination. We can disagree on Calvinism and Arminianism. If you don't know who those guys are, it's okay. And we can disagree on these things and still be all right. And the reason I believe that, I'm going to push some of you guys here a little bit, is if you go into the gospel, the gospel of Matthew, there was a guy named Simon the Zealot, who, which would have been extreme left winger, right? He would have been way out there in left field. And then you had a Roman centurion who worked for the evil empire. And he would have been way out there in right field, a way right winger. And both of these individuals served the same master, Jesus Christ. Get this, Republicans and Democrats can worship together. <laughs> Liberals and conservatives, as long as we are following the words of this book, we can worship together, we can fellowship together, and we can advance the kingdom of God. Crazy stuff. You know what that takes, though? That takes actually conversing with people versus arguing with them on Facebook. Sorry. Next part. Then I wanted to know the true meaning from all the others. Uh, I'm sorry. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one different from all the others. Extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and the mouth that had spoken arrogantly, and it was more visible than the others. As I was watching this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come, and the holy ones took possession 
of the kingdom. Okay? So as Daniel is sitting there getting this interpretation, there's a part of him that couldn't forget the fourth beast. He kept thinking about this extremely terrifying, powerful fourth beast. Okay? So Daniel was listening to the angel couldn't stop thinking about this fourth beast. And it probably wasn't just his intrigue. It was probably the Holy Spirit pushing Daniel to ask questions about this fourth beast because kind of the, the, the answers we get about the end time fall on the interpretation of this fourth beast. So remember, if, you were, if you've been with us for a while, the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire, and that goes back to a dream and an interpretation in, in uh, Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about a statue, and the last empire, this blended empire at the bottom, represents the Romans, okay? So it's the same connection. Now, essentially what's going to happen is the Roman Empire fell a long time ago. You guys know that. Everyone knows that. We don't live in a Roman Empire anymore. It fell a long time ago. But what Revelation 17, 12 says is this, is that horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast. That's the Antichrist. Implying that after the Roman Empire falls, 10 nations will rise up. We don't know what the time looks like. It's been 1,500 years. It may be 1,500 more. We don't know. But eventually, 10 nations will rise from that and they will be led by what Daniel calls the little horn, or the New Testament calls the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, or the beast, okay? Now, what's going to essentially happen, this is a lot to take in, and I'm going to run over it kind of fast, I'm sorry, is the Roman Empire will eventually be parceled, broken up, into ten other empires. Ten leaders of these empires will unite, but there will be dissension. Some of them won't agree. So since they can't kind of get their act together, one will rise up, the Antichrist. This one man will rise up and lead these 10. And he will, in fact, take three of the lesser ones or more, maybe the smaller nations or whatever that's going to look like. He's going to subdue them and it will bring the number down. There will be seven nations or seven kingdoms, okay? And they will be run by the Antichrist, which essentially means he will run the entire world. Now, his destruction, his demise, will be one of the great events of Jesus' return. And before all this happens, here's the fun stuff. Before all this happens, the church will go through a time of persecution. We talk about persecution like it's something that's not even happening right now, and it very much is. It's happening in Asia, it's happening in Russia, it's happening in Africa, it's happening almost everywhere else in the world except for right here. And as Daniel was watching this drama unfold, this epic play unfold in his vision, he saw this little horn that wages war against the people of God, and they prevail. They actually gain ground against the church until God comes back and stops it. Now, in Revelation 7, it describes that a lot of Jews and Christians will go through what's called seven years of tribulation, and there will be a remnant of Jewish people that will make it through this, but there will be a lot of Jews and a lot of Christians who will be slaughtered in a short amount of time, okay? We're going to talk about that. Before we get into that, though, we need to know this, and this is a huge problem that I see in the Christian church in the United States right now. 1 Peter 2.11 tells us this, that this is our temporary place 
and that we are migrants, we are temporary residents moving through this life. Now look, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be successful, doesn't mean that you should work on your, doesn't mean that you should not work on your marriage or build relationships or build your business or get an education or paint more paintings or write more books or write more songs, doesn't mean that you shouldn't live this life to the fullest. But to a believer who knows who Jesus is, we must understand that the kingdom of the United States is not our eternal kingdom. Corey, you're anti-government. No, that's not it. I know that this is not my permanent residence. This world is not all I have to look forward to. And my fear is, is that we don't know that our kingdom has not yet arrived. There are so many people losing their minds right now with politics, losing their ever-loving mind. We're damned if this person gets elected. We're damned if this person gets elected. Now look, Jesus addressed that. He said, don't be afraid of people who can take your body. Be afraid of the one that can take your soul. That's the only one we have to be fearful of is God. We don't need to be afraid of politicians. We don't need to be afraid of governments. Ultimately, they have no say-so in your eternal soul. And quite frankly, we are going to appear to keep losing, the Bible says, until God reinserts himself back into the world. If you go into the Old Testament, the reason why Jesus showed up is we had wrecked the world. We'd become savage and brutal and corrupt. And so Jesus said, I need to get in there and clean this mess up. And he's going to do it again. So it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And then Christ is going to say, all right, I've had enough. And he's going to come back and set it straight. And what we find is you and I serve a very polarizing Savior. Jesus is the most polarizing figure that's ever existed. And Jesus even said in Matthew 10, 34, that he came to bring a sword. Now that's a different sword than the, than the prophet Muhammad claimed to bring. This is not a sword of conquest. This is not a sword of violence. This is a sword that defines the lines between morality and immorality. He brings the sword of division, the defining lines of right and wrong, and he will do this before, as the Bible says, the end of days. Now, what this leads me to believe, me and my finite wisdom, it leads me to believe that there will be a great rebellion against God. We know that for a fact because the Bible says it many, many times. There will be a great rebellion that will grow towards God. We also I believe we'll see a great revival as the coming of Christ approaches. We will see a great movement towards righteousness. We will see a great movement towards an allegiance to Jesus Christ. We will see those lines defined. I believe, and I'm an optimist in this way. You wouldn't believe that, right? I'm an optimist in this way, that there will be a great awakening of the church. And the evidence of this revival we talk about revivals. Man, I used, to, I used to get asked to speak at revivals all the time. We're going to have a three-day revival. I'm like, three days? That sucks. Why don't we make like the church a revival all the time, right? There needs to be a revival all the time of the church. A true revival is not an event. A true revival isn't a tent out in a field. A revival is confession. It's repentance. It's the evidence of changed lives around us. True revival, a true awakening of Christianity will be a move, a shift towards righteous living through evangelism, through social justice. 
The church in America is still spending hundreds of millions of dollars on buildings while we have starving kids and orphans. There will be a move towards social justice when there's true revival in the church. You will see believers spending time in prayer. Shockingly enough, Christians will pray. They'll read the word. They'll obey the word. We will use our spiritual gifting and we will do it with power and confidence. We will see these things, I believe, before Jesus Christ returns. You guys with me this morning? Okay. So this is what the angel said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another different from the previous ones will rise after them and subdue three kings. I just told you that. He will speak words against the Most High, and he will oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. I'll explain that. So like I said, Daniel 7 is a big deal because it gives us the first glimpse of the Antichrist. We really see that in verse 24. Verse 24 in Daniel chapter 7 are so important because now we get to kind of see a snapshot of what the end of human history is going to look like. And at first, this Antichrist, this evil man, is going to be just another human king. But what happens is he's going to rise to power and he's going to rise above the other horns, the other kings around him and before him. He's going to be charismatic, he's going to be powerful, and he's going to be running the most absolute dictatorship in history. Now, the devil always works in subtleties. And before I forget, in case I forget to say it later, what scares me so much about Christianity right now and how up in arms and how hateful we're being towards each other and how much stock we're putting in politics right now. Now look, I'm not trying to tell you to be disengaged. I'm not trying to tell you to not watch the news. I'm not trying to tell you to not vote. I'll vote. I watch the news. I stay informed. You should do that too. But look, here's the thing as we get into the Antichrist. In the last days of human history, two individuals will, corrupt, will be corrupted and they will mislead tons and tons of people. Jesus says even a lot of believers will be misled. And the great leader that will mislead almost the entire world will be a charismatic political figure. So whenever we are looking at a man or a woman in politics to save us, when a charismatic leader that comes and seemingly unifies the world comes along, a lot of believers are going to say, we got our politician. Everything's going to be okay. And then there's going to be a religious leader that's going to join him. So here's the thing. Whenever we look at politics to save us, we're going to fail. Whenever we look at religion to save us, we will also fail. It is not in religion and it is not in politics that we find, we find salvation. And what happens is that Satan works in subtleties. We know this because in Genesis chapter 3, the way he deceived Eve. I don't know if you guys know this or not. It's not, again, it's not like the movies. If Satan were to walk in the door right now, it wouldn't be like this big fiery dragon saying, oh, you guys should you know, look at pornography or whatever. It's not going to be that. It's not going to be this crazy beast that just like, you know, muscles you into sin. It's going to be a seductive voice. 
It's going to be calm. It's going to be charismatic. It's going to be attractive. That's how he works. He's very persuasive with his lies. And this man, this political figure, will seemingly fix the world and unify it. We don't know how. It doesn't say specifically. It could be maybe he solves world hunger. Maybe he fixes all the economic systems of the world. But however he does it, Jesus himself said many believers will be deceived. Even the very elect, he says, will be deceived. And his counterpart will do seemingly miraculous things. So not only do we need to look away from politics for our salvation, there's a huge movement of churches that have grown and gotten huge off miraculous things. Jesus said it's a perverse generation that seeks a sign. And so there are churches, there's a very famous one in California, Northern California. Their church has grown and just, it's double the size of this one. There's probably 4,000 people or so. It's grown and it's gotten huge because these crazy, miraculous things happen. Not biblical miracles. I'm talking about gold dust falls from the sky, right? And feathers fall down and people like miraculously lose 60 pounds in an hour and all this crazy junk that is nowhere biblically supported. But people buy this church's books they listen to the church's music, they follow them adamantly, and they love this church because of these things. And here's what's messed up about that. Eventually, a religious man will show up and do these kinds of things. It says it in the Bible, Revelation 13, 15. He will do miraculous things. And eventually, he will even build this image of this antichrist and make it come to life. And if Christians are not grounded in the word of God, they're going to fall for these religious shenanigans. So it is not, listen, it is not religion and it is not politics. It is Christ. It is Christ that saves our souls and gives us direction. And we need to understand that. And so to the Antichrist, the world is not enough. He conquers the world. Not conquers all the people in it, but he conquers the world. And that's not enough. What he's going to do is he's going to turn his attention now to blaspheming God. It's not enough to have conquered the world. He's going to claim that he is God. Now, Corey, that's crazy. All the, all the Caesars did it. All the Pharaohs did it. This leader will do the same thing. He will claim to be a deity. And because his hatred of the true God, he cannot attack the true God. So what he will do is he will turn his force onto God's people. He will turn his force onto the church. And God will allow this for a certain period of time. The Antichrist will become so arrogant that he will even try to change times and calendars and laws. He'll write new constitutions. He'll change religious laws to be more humanistic. Instead of it being focused on a deity, it will be focused on you as an individual. I've said this before. The basis of satanic worship is not worshiping Satan. I don't know if you knew that or not. The basis of satanic worship, according to the Black Bible, their Bible, is worship of self. Trust your heart. Follow the goodness in you, which is quite contradictory to the book of Jeremiah when it says your heart is deceitful and will lie to you. But this is what humanistic belief says, is just trust yourself. And this person will try to change the laws of nature, change morality, change economics. And this will happen for time, times, and half a time. A year, two years, and then a half of a year. And so if you add these two time times and half a time together, it equals seven, that there will be seven years of tribulation, and most theologians believe the seven years of tribulation will start when a peace treaty between the world and Israel is signed. Now, that's not to get into conspiracies. It's not so you can look at the news all the time and, oh, is Israel signing any treaties right now? Don't get hung up on that stuff. 
But apparently what will happen is the nation of Israel will sign some kind of a peace treaty and it will be upheld for three and a half years. And then in the middle of the seven years, it will be broken and the Jews will be viciously attacked by this Antichrist. So the time times and half a time represents three and a half years. And for seven years, the Antichrist will be in total, complete power on earth. But it's the last three and a half years where we will see a lot of tribulation. We will see a lot of bloodshed. His power will be at its peak. Now, there's a lot of debate, and we can disagree on this. There's a lot of debate on how long or even if Christians are on earth during these seven years. Some people believe it will be raptured, which, by the way, that, book's not in the, that word's not in the Bible. But anyways, that's another conversation. Some people believe we will be raptured pre-tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or that we will go through all seven years. Okay? Now, just letting you in, and you can go back and watch our Revelation series I believe the Bible says we will go through all seven years. That's just Corey's belief. If you disagree with that, it's totally fine. I hope you're right and I'm wrong, and I hope we get zapped away, but I don't see Scripture that supports that. So that's just me. Last part. We're going to end on a happy note, I swear. (laughs) You guys are like Googling pre-trib churches right now. Is there any churches that teach that pre-tribulation thing? I'd rather hear that. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. That's talking about the Antichrist. Now, here's the good stuff. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the interpretation. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, here's what's important for the believer in this day and age, and I've said it a hundred times, and I'll say it a hundred more. We're engaged in politics, we're engaged in economics, we're engaged in culture, all those things, and there's nothing wrong with that, but at the end of the day, we have to remember who's in charge. Last week, we talked about, you will see this imagery and, and Daniel writes about it, that the Antichrist will be arrogant and boastful and it will look like the church is losing and it will look like morality is losing and it will look like the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. And the whole time it appears like that, God sits on the throne. God sits on the throne. So verse 26 refers back to verse 10 when we see God sitting on the throne and he's got the books of our lives set out in front of him and the court, the great supreme court of God, is about to convene. Now, the first thing this court is going to do when it convenes is it's going to judge the Antichrist. First thing God's going to do, Christ is going to come back. He's going to cast the Antichrist into hell, never to come back again. And the false prophet, the religious person that works with him, they're going to be cast and they're going to be dealt with. And then after that, there will be a thousand year reign. We talked about that last week. A thousand years of Jesus setting up shop on this earth and reigning this earth. And what we see is that the kingdom of God, this is crazy, the kingdom of God will be given to the people. And we see this amazing contrast between earthly kingdoms that not only gain their power by conquest, but they hold that power. And we see the the contrast of the dictatorships of the world and then God giving his kingdom to his people. This is yours. You take this. This is yours. And he gives it to his followers. So after this thousand years where we get to reign on earth with Christ, all of humanity will be resurrected 
It says that in, in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And then we will be ultimately judged and we will either go to heaven or go to hell. And that's when Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire, the Bible says, and we'll never see Satan again, okay? Now, my thoughts change on this stuff, and I reserve the right to do that because it's debatable stuff, right? So every time I read Revelation again, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I think this. So I read it recently again, and my thought initially was that all believers take part in that thousand-year reign, okay? Thousand years of peace on earth. I feel like originally I thought all believers do that. The more I go back and research, the more it looks like to me, and you may disagree, that this is a special reward for all the martyrs of Christ. All the people who've been slaughtered for Jesus' name, not just now, but through the seven years of tribulation, through the past, all the people who've died for Jesus' name, that this thousand years is a special privilege for them for a short amount of time because of what they, go, they went through for Christ. Now, if you go into Revelation 6, verse 9 through 11, John, who wrote Revelation, Seize the martyrs in heaven. You should go back and read that tonight. It's really fun. You should go back and just read the whole book of Revelation. Take you 30 minutes. It's great. So he goes in chapter 6, and he sees heaven. And in heaven, there will be this cheering section, if you will, of all the people who have been martyred for Jesus Christ. And they keep saying, you have to avenge us. And God says, I'm going to, but be patient. And so John sees that they're going to get this, this vengeance for them, this, they're being avenged. And now maybe this thousand years is a reward for them. A little bit more evidence for that, if you want to look into it. In chapter 20, verse 5, it kind of simply says that not everyone is resurrected during the thousand years. That after the thousand years, it says that the sea will give up the dead and all these things will give up the dead and they will all be judged. Okay. Now there's also a group of people, and if you fall into these camps, it's okay as long as you believe in Jesus Christ. There's a group called the pro-millennialists who believe it's all figurative. There's other groups that think it's figurative too. But the pro-millennialists is kind of a new movement where they believe when you're talking about the thousand-year reign, that's almost just like a badge of honor that the martyrs get to wear. It's not literal. It's almost like a badge of honor. When we get to heaven, we'll see, you know, certain people may have a certain thing on their robe. I don't know if we wear robes or not, but anyways, robes or whatever that says that they were a martyr, okay? So at the end of this interpretation... Here's where we get into the extremely important stuff. At the end of the interpretation, Daniel is still scared. Guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. In these tumultuous times, it's okay to be a little afraid. I know that God's in control. And you guys got young kids in here? Seven and three, right? Yeah, you guys, you guys with younger kids, you know what I'm talking about. It's a little scary to bring your kids up in this day and age. And that's okay. Daniel says that his face turned pale. And he kept the matter to himself. And the reason he kept the matter to himself and the reason why he became terrified, listen, Daniel got to see what humanity becomes when there's an absence of God. Daniel got to see what happens to people when there's an absence of God. And what happens to people, not just individuals, but whole nations and kingdoms, what happens to people when there's an absence of God is we become brutal, we become immoral, we become depraved, and we are ultimately lost. If you haven't noticed, our world is savage. Savage. Not just in the Congo, not just in South Africa, not just in the crazy parts of uncharted land that we've never been to. North America is savage. We have become brutal. We've become immoral. We're depraved and we're lost. 
And now what happens is if we don't understand, you and I as individuals, if we don't understand that if we do not fall at the feet of Christ, if we don't understand that we must submit to Him and be humble in front of Him and approach Christ and push all of our insecurities and faults and failures and sin and shame and guilt, if we don't understand that we need to give that to Him, we will become brutal, immoral, lost, and depraved. We will fall apart. This is what Jesus said. I'm going to do my best to connect these two Scripture, okay? I'm going to do my best. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation producing fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That's present tense. I added present. It's present tense. What Jesus is saying right now is that God is trying to get our attention. And instead of us recognizing him, he has become a stumbling block. And when we don't recognize Christ as Savior, we remain broken right now, as I speak. If we fail to acknowledge the stone, if we fail to acknowledge Christ, marriages will still fall apart. Kids will still be lost. The nuclear family will continue to disintegrate. Politics and economics and occupations and relationships will all be broken if we don't acknowledge what we keep stumbling over. And so what we need to do now, today, and I'm going to give you the opportunity in a second, is we need to let the light of the Holy Spirit shine on us to expose what is broken, and then Jesus can fix it. But if we don't, the stone that we continually trip over, this stumbling block that is Jesus Christ, if we don't acknowledge what we keep falling over, not only will we remain broken now, but as Jesus said, that stone will come back and it will grind us to powder. We have a lifetime to realize that we are broken and to let God fix it. But if we don't, He will come back and He will judge mankind. And it says in Acts chapter 4 that this stone that we stumble over, this stone that people reject, is the cornerstone. When we finally look down and realize that God is trying to get our attention, to get us to shine the light on us and expose our brokenness and our insecurities and our sin and our shame and our guilt and our rebellion, when we finally realize what we're tripping over, we don't just realize it's a stone, we realize that it's the stone that everything should be built upon. You guys with me? Listen. When we look down and realize it's the cornerstone, we understand that our marriage must be built on that or it will fall apart. We understand that our economics must be built on that. We understand that our relationships and our friendships and our work ethic, everything must be built upon that. That it is the cornerstone. It is the most important, fundamental, foundational piece that has ever existed. So look, here's the thing. God knows who we are. God knows who you are. He knows the sin you struggle with. He knows the doubt. He knows the fear that some of you are paralyzed with. He knows the anxiety. He knows the depression. He knows the shame from mistakes. He knows the guilt. As he was walking with his disciples, they were afraid of the same things that we're afraid of right now. They're afraid of losing their life at the hands of people that didn't believe like them. They were terrified. And Jesus turns around and he says, I love you. And I know every single hair on your head. 
Every hair on your head I know. He knows us. So the question isn't, can we hide from God? We cannot. He knew you and I before we were knit together in our mother's womb. He knew us. There's no hiding from God's knowledge. So that's not the question. The question is this. Can we be humble enough and wise enough to let the spotlight of the Holy Spirit turn on our souls and expose the brokenness within us? Can we be wise enough and humble enough to confess, to repent, not only to say I was wrong, but to say, God, I don't want to be wrong anymore. Turn me, change me, forgive me, restore me, heal me. And if we will allow God to do that, if we will just be humble, if we will approach Him with vulnerability, God will start to put the pieces back together. And listen, He won't just save your eternal soul. God will give us, because the power of the Holy Spirit, He will give us the kind of contentment and joy that if they take your house, if they take your car, if they, God forbid, take your family, that we still know that our kingdom has not yet come, but it is coming. It is coming. I don't know if you noticed or not, we purposely did fewer worship songs today. The reason why we did that is I wanted to open up some time at the end for you to pray. Guys, the Lord didn't tell us to build a house of worship. He didn't tell us to build a house of religion. He didn't tell us to build a house of dogma or even social justice. He told us to build a house of prayer. And we need to pray. There's going to be people on the right and left, men and women on both sides, that are willing to pray with you. They're not perfect. They may not have every single word to bring you comfort, but they are good people that will pray with you and if you have any brokenness, I want to challenge you to go see them. If you have any insecurities, if you have anything that's stressing you out or fear, let these people pray with you. There's also communion on the right and left. And if you've never been to this church, the communion represents the body and blood of Jesus. Everyone is welcome to take it as long as you've asked God to forgive you of your sins. Now look, you have time. We have time. It's only 10.20. Next service is until 11. We have time. Pray. If you don't come up here and get prayer from someone, go back to your seat and pray with your spouse. Pray with your friends. If you're here alone, pray in your seat. Do not miss an opportunity due to pride or foolishness to connect with Jesus Christ today. And look, if you need to leave, if you want to have a conversation, Please be respectful of the people in this room that are communing with God. Please go out in the hallway or if you need to go get your kids, go out this door over here, okay? Guys, we've got to build our relationship with God. We've got to. Because when the times come, I just fear that we're not going to be ready. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I thank you and I praise you, God. Lord, there's a lot of people in this room, God, that are going through things, Lord, that I, I don't even have any idea about. There's people in this room who are paralyzed with fear. They're drowning in depression or guilt or shame. 
people in this room that have unconfessed sins that they need to confess and repent. There are people in this room that struggle with sexual issues or greed or materialism or anger or whatever the case may be. My prayer, Father, is that you would give them enough courage to step forward and to have someone pray for them. I pray, God, that, that people have enough courage to come and not just take communion, but to know, Lord, that your Holy Spirit was unleashed when your son died on the cross, and that that Holy Spirit is the comforter, and it's the counselor, and that it's with us right now. Lord Jesus, God, we need you so badly, not just as the church, but as individuals. We need you now, and we need you for eternity. Lord, we love you, God, and we praise you, and we thank you, Lord. Bless all my brothers and sisters in this room. And if there are any unbelievers in this room, if there are anyone in this room who's struggling with their faith or they have no faith at all, but you found yourself here, I believe that if you are courageous enough to just ask God if he's real, I believe his Holy Spirit will start to work on your heart. We love you, Father, and we thank you, God. All honor and glory be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself.